Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Kenneth Couquier, a senior editor at The Economist, and you're listening to a special year-end edition of Babbage, our weekly podcast on science and technology. On this episode, I'm joined by two industry experts, and together we'll look back at the major stories of 2016, including how artificial intelligence has moved from the research lab into the real world. Progress in in gaming environments and showing that we can really learn complex behaviors and how we can educate robots to be behaving in the real world. And we'll look ahead to 2017 and ask if cybersecurity can finally overcome the inherent vulnerabilities of the Internet. And we'll explore the intriguing issue of data donorship. In the same way that you might say I'll donate an organ when I pass away, there's a scarcity of good data on individual human beings and obviously a great concern about privacy. So there's a growing movement actually to open up and donate your data. Joining me to discuss these issues and more are Nathan Benesh, an investor with Playfair Capital, which invests in technology startups, and Charlie Muirhead, the CEO and founder of Cognition X, an AI services company. Welcome, Charlie. Hi, Ken. Hey, welcome, Nathan. Hey, Ken. Hey there. So looking back at 2016, first, this was really the year when artificial intelligence took off. We had the win of AlphaGo beating the world's best Go player in Korea, but we also had the Tesla crash of driverless cars. Tell me, what do you guys think of this year in AI? I mean, I think we've we've really seen um, some pretty significant events, as as you cited, and um, there really hasn't been a day that's that's gone by that we haven't seen some announcement related to AI. I think when we're looking at the uh, media mentions between 2016 and 2015. We've seen around 150% increase in, in media sightings. And, you know, a lot of this correlates to, to real results that are transitioning away from the research lab into the real world. And, of course, progress in, in gaming environments and, and showing that we can really learn complex behaviors and how we can um, educate robots to be behaving in the real world and also see advances in fintech and healthcare are making the subject extremely real. And I think that's in part why people are very excited about the topic of AI. Charlie, is there any, anything that happened in 2016 that you find to be particularly notable for AI? There's something like uh, 1,500 new companies that launched products that uh, used some kind of AI this year. That's a very broad definition of AI, but you know, there's just been an explosion of innovation, which is really exciting. I think it's, you know, as with all entrepreneurship, some of those companies will make it and some won't, but we are, we are seeing an unprecedented pace of innovation in this space, and AI is a big part of it. AI being part of 2016, one of the other great technologies that have cropped up has been in the area of genomics with CRISPR and immunotherapy. Nathan, why don't you go first? What's interesting about this? Genome editing has been a topic of uh, significant interest over the last couple of years, first starting out from the context of building um, systems for research purposes. So, for example, how can we create uh, a model of human disease and study it in the lab and then use that to develop new therapeutics and actually understand the mechanisms of disease? Now, the next step to that is once we understand disease, can we have methods of genetic engineering that can be applied to humans. 
and do that in a really safe way. And over the last couple of years, we've tried loads of different methods, including viruses, which um, are particularly dangerous uh, in the clinical setting. But with CRISPR, we have this, this means to do very, very specific um, DNA editing, both in the therapeutic context, but also in the research model context. Uh, people are incredibly excited. There's been a couple uh, companies that have actually gone public in this, uh, in this technology area. And so, you know, I think in the next sort of year or two years, we'll really start to figure out what, what kind of fruits can be uh, born from this space. Really interesting. And Charlie, what do you think? Is there a third thing that you'd add for looking back on 2016 that was notable for you in technology? Sure. So I think this is the first year that the public has really been exposed to the whole AI debate, both the utopian potential and, you know, Microsoft announcing they felt they could cure cancer within 10 years, but also the dystopian fear mongering. And, you know, I think we all hope that that starts to die down next year. But certainly this year, it certainly reached a crescendo. Okay, so that's a good place to pick up on what we expect from 2017. What do you think the big trends are going to be? Let me advance one, which is security, and in particular, cybersecurity. I think we're going to see a continuation of the open sourcing movement. Obviously, Linux was open source, but most recently, there are lots of AI initiatives that have been open sourced, and I think that's great. And it's important when it comes down to security because DARPA did a, a competition this year, and for the first time, they had multiple machines both attack and defend themselves completely autonomously. So the, the area of security is, um, is obviously of, of huge concern. So I've got to ask, Charlie... Who won, the attackers or the defenders? Well, actually, all machines were attacking and defending, and it was Carnegie Mellon uh, University's research group that won. Oh, fantastic. So we have to go to Carnegie Mellon and see uh, you know, what you need to do to both defend yourself as well as attack yourself. All right, so one thing is going to be the openness of AI as well as in an area of cybersecurity. What do you think is going on, Nathan? What do you expect? One of the big question marks over the success of AI companies has traditionally been access to data. And obviously in the consumer space, large internet companies are the ones that are, that are winning, and it's very difficult to catch up. On the enterprise side, there's a lot of corporations who have siloed data sets, and there's huge opportunities for machine learning companies to go in there and leverage those data sets to build smarter applications. And I think there's a big opportunity between small companies and larger ones to work on that problem. But the actual next frontier that was also voiced at an academic conference about the subject last week is this idea of new training environments. So these are digital environments that run on the web, for example, that approximate the real world. So they're trying to either use games or use more complex environments that recapitulate physics of, of reality. And in those settings, um, you don't actually need to buy data from another source, you can generate it on the fly in those environments. So it's a new way really to train AI systems without having to have access to a quote-unquote proprietary data set because you're actually generating it in that digital environment. Yeah, that's exactly why at DeepMind they say they like video games so much is that it's a, not only a constrained reality, but they have lots of data to work on because that's they right. can just generate their own that's right. when they need it. I'd love to add to that point. I think there's a really interesting discussion starting around the concept of data donorship. Um, from us as individuals. So in, in the same way that you might say, I'll donate an organ when I pass away in case somebody else needs it, um, and that's an incredibly valuable thing to do, there's a scarcity of, of good data um, on individual human beings and obviously a great concern about privacy. So there's a growing movement actually to open up and donate your data to further medical research. Mm. And I think that's going to be a very exciting trend for next year. Yeah, I think I, I would agree with that, although I have to say it's with heavy heart because 
in a reasonable world, you wouldn't have to donate your data. Your data would simply be used in this sort of information commons for researchers to tap into to improve health outcomes. And it wouldn't have to be this active choice of an individual, but something that was just done society-wide. I have a question for you guys, which is that we had been talking about for the last two years, and particularly last year, that virtual reality and augmented reality were going to be very big things. We've not really seen much happen last year. Do you think 2017 is going to be the year of AR and VR, or are we going to be waiting for Godot yet again? I think that many of the problems from the hardware side have have been solved, and we have you know, sophisticated headsets that are able to approximate amazing environments, but really what we lack is content. The, you know, there's not enough amazing examples that really give people a tangible reason to use VR for real-world settings. And so I think, you know, the entertainment business is one that's going to thrive significantly. But there's other applications for VR in the healthcare space that are, that are actually emerging and are probably going to be particularly powerful. Sounds really interesting. One good example I've heard from the, uh, the healthcare space is around training. Um, for surgery. So uh, there's a company called Touch Surgery here in the UK who are pioneering training of surgeons so that you can Im- improve the number of surgeons that are available to do work and reduce the cost of training. And VR and AR is going to play a very important role there. Absolutely. As you probably know, one of the, one of the major reasons for uh, problems and complications during surgery is that these surgeons leave things inside the patients. And you can imagine that when surgeons have a little a camera, a little deep learning algorithm that's looking at what's going on, and particularly augmented reality, as well as every surgical item that goes into a patient having a chip on it, that will go away and healthcare will improve. Another theme that was very popular this year, but we haven't seen much happen, was the blockchain. Sure, there's always announcements, but it doesn't look like it's been adopted very widely by business. A lot of smoke, but not much fire. Do you think 2017 is going to be the blockchain year? It's a totally fair comment. Um, I've been looking at the the progress of R3CEV, which is a, an increasingly growing consortium of financial institutions that are essentially prototyping different use cases for the blockchain in fintech. And you know, it's it's fair to say that there's been a lot of noise and not necessarily a huge amount of deliverables from the commercial standpoint, although there has been from the R and D one. I'm still particularly intrigued with you know the blockchain serving as a distributed database more than you know a platform on which to trade currencies, for example. But but I think one thing that that digital tokens do have that are quite powerful is that they incentivize peer-to-peer networks in a way that encourages builders, but also encourages the demand side in such a way as the value of the uh, of the network can accrue significantly through this accrual and value of the digital token itself, which is quite powerful. But it also means that, that actually the tokens are probably going to be the more valuable component than the network in itself. And so when you're considering investing in companies in that space, it's probably better to actually hold the tokens than it is to hold the company that uses them. That's a little bit outrageous. But you've seen, uh, for example, uh, just this week, there's been the launch of a, a hedge fund called Polychain Capital, which is actually investing in the tokens themselves because they believe that indeed the tokens are the ones that accrue value as the network accrues value. So, for example, in the file sharing use case, there's a a digital token called Filecoin, um, and that's being used to essentially share files between um, two parties. And so as that network accrues in value, you see that the price of Filecoin goes up. That's something that is, is a lot easier to capitalize on than it is to actually buy shares in the company itself. So it's interesting. It's almost like the, the paragon of the virtualization of the economy by putting a, a layer, a simulacrum 
of financial incentive around all the interactions. That's right. And then there's people who don't actually care about the interactions themselves. They only care about the finance. That sounds a little bit like 2007 and, and subprime mortgages. <laughs> I will, for, for, the, for the record, the investor is silent and the entrepreneur is chortling. Okay, let's move along to the issue of computational assisted diagnoses and using AI in healthcare. Charlie, you've been thinking about AI for a long time in terms of how it's being used in lots of different industries. What do you think is going to happen in 2017 in terms of healthcare? So there's a huge amount of activity here. The healthcare sector is the most invested area of AI in this year, uh, followed by financial services. Um, there's some incredible companies being developed. I think they are all wrestling with GDPR, so the General Data Protection Regulation. And there's all kinds of limitations that come both from that as well as the regulations in the industry. Um, a good example would be a company like Brain Miner, who uh, have access to maybe a million records, which is um, imaging of the human brain from UCL's hospital, now developing a, a, a commercial instance. And these data sets obviously can't be uh, moved around. They're incredibly sensitive. But once you commercialize the technology, you can take the trained algorithms, in some cases, outside of the medical establishment that, that they were collected in. You know, that is the kind of technology that can, you know, detect the onset of Parkinson's and all kinds of diseases. And it's, it's pretty widely accepted that, you know, we know less than 0.1% of the DNA of a human. But what we can detect so far enables us to get into the early prevention game rather than the uh, curing game. Yeah, that's exactly right. Nathan, what do you think? Is this going to be the year in which these uh, technologies go from the lab to the uh, to deployment? We're certainly going to make significant progress to that end because it's it really is a case that from the technological side, this problem is genuinely tractable, especially in the use case of detecting anomalies in certain medical images, for example, X-ray and CT. There are small-scale experiments that show that this is possible using deep learning and other methods, but really it's limited from the standpoint of regulation, as Charlie was talking about, and especially in the U.S. with the FDA, because there is no precedence for using um, a deep learning-based system. All the previous systems were handcrafted since the Second World War. And so it's really going to be sort of a race and capital-intensive exercise to go through this first regulatory hurdle. But as soon as that happens, I think we're actually going to realize significant value. And, you know, if, if the fact that in the U.S. there's 35,000 radiologists that have to do screening on 30 million women every year shows you the extent to which the problem exists, I think that's a perfect recipe for encouraging more innovation and the automation of some of these tasks, which radiologists are simply overburdened with. I completely agree. In fact, it's what's outrageous is only 30 million women get scans and get um, biopsies, right. where in fact, you could imagine that the real number should be 250 million, uh, and it should be done um, 12 times a year. Right, And we'd learn something new about the progression of disease if we did that. But, of course, we don't. So, in fact, our solutions, as Charlie said earlier, is trying to treat the disease rather than treat the, the potentiality for the disease, which would have had a lower intervention and save lives and improve mm. quality of life. A much lower cost to the healthcare system as well. Absolutely. And you have to wonder, you pull out your hair, how it is we live in a society that doesn't actually take the most reasonable steps. Speaking of the most reasonable steps, I want to end on something that we've already spoken about, but I don't think we've talked about sufficiently, which is security and, again, cybersecurity. I just think this is a ticking time bomb. Uh, either mollify my angoisse or tell me that the problem's even worse and what are we going to do about it? 
One area on the research segment that I'm quite interested in is um, is this notion of homomorphic encryption and differential privacy that a lot of big companies are working on. The first one, homomorphic encryption, being this idea that you can take a sensitive data set, encrypt it, but still preserve the intrinsic structure of it such that you can run computations on top of it, decrypt the result, and it actually be useful. And so this idea of taking something that's sensitive and obscuring the complexity of it and distributing it amongst many, many people means that we democratize access to problems. And therefore, more people are coming in to solve them, which means that we can approach the much more efficient and you know, local maximum to solving that issue. And, and that, that kind of comes to the point of trying to solve this, this notion of, yes, we have a lot of proprietary data that's very sensitive, but we know that the end solutions, if we use it, are incredibly powerful. But how do we actually enable that progression from occurring properly? And I think technologies like homework encryption and differential privacy might be solutions to it. Nathan, jolly interesting. Agreed it's super. Addresses the wrong problem. It basically is saying, how are we going to actually analyze data when we want to protect privacy? I'm nervous about baby monitors being able to be used by hackers as a way of a distributed denial attack that's going to take down mm. the banking system or release the nuclear weapons from you know, Iron Mountain in the United States. Mm. Charlie, mollify my soul. Uh, I'm going to try and do my best. The issue is, uh, or was well described by Bruce Schneier, who recently addressed the Senate in the US about the potential risk of all these IoT devices. And the only direction you see that going in is one of regulation. Without the regulation over the devices that have been created and the security level on those devices, you are creating a, a mesh for hacking, which is there to be abused by anybody who can get onto it. So I think the, 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 the point you make is very, very real. And at the moment, there are no technology solutions to it, I'm afraid. Okay, well, that's not very optimistic, but there we have it. Look, guys, thank you very much for joining me on the show. Nathan, thank you. Charlie, thanks a lot. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. If you have any thoughts on what were the top technology issues of 2016, or you want to make a tech prediction of 2017, please email us at radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio, or visit our Facebook page. That's all for this year. For more news on science and technology and everything else we cover, don't forget to pick up the special double issue, the Christmas edition of The Economist. Don't forget to pick up the special double issue Christmas edition of The Economist that's on newsstands now. Or find us online at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. 